Hello and welcome to the 100th episode of TrackCast, the official podcast of the Real Estate Council from deep in the heart of Dallas, Texas. I'm Bill San Antonio. Thank you so much for joining us. Our monthly CRE Executive Roundtable returns today with special guests Mike Lafitte of CBRE and Trey Morsback of JLL, who join us for a look at how the commercial real estate industry is continuing its recovery from COVID-19 and what the big picture looks like for the future of the capital markets. If you're joining us today for the first time, welcome, and make sure you subscribe to the show on your favorite podcast app so you get more episodes like this one right to your mobile device. We put out new episodes almost every week, sharing event replays, roundtable discussions, and exclusive interviews with some of the biggest real estate names in DFW. Be sure to follow us on social media as well for the latest updates. We've linked to each of our handles in the show notes for this episode. Now, here's episode 100, our latest CRE executive roundtable with Mike Lafitte of CBRE and Trey Morsback of JLL right here on TrackCast. All right, so I'm going to get us going here. Um, welcome to the um, April 14th Track CEO meeting. You know, fascinating. We actually started this um, with Bill Hawley and Linda, I think it was exactly a year ago now. And the, the genesis was that um, we had a radical confluence of issues all at once that shifted the market in, in, in a radical way, um, not just like a financial hiccup, but consumer, um, how the consumer moved changed, the workforce environment changed, our family formation format and living changed, supply chain changed, finance changed, every facet changed at once and it caused a lot of dislocations. So we started these calls to try to share with each other, share information, share thoughts, to get to a better common understanding that would benefit all of us. And that was really neat. And, and here we are a year later, um, no one would have predicted the year and um, no one probably would have predicted the, the vaccine in the speed that it came or nor would anybody probably predicted any of this. And suddenly we are going through a very fast shift and we're all feeling it um, shifting back to something or towards something and it seemed like a great time to invite our two member speakers today um, Mike Lafitte and Trey Morsback um, and really excited um, to have Mike Lafitte he's global CEO for CBRE real estate investors which includes their global real estate asset management investment management I'm having to read this because it's so much I'm going to take a nap after I read his title company Hannah um, their flexible office solutions, which is going to be really interesting to hear him talk about if that's part of what he wants to focus on from uh, where we're at. And uh, we have Trey Morsback, um, Executive Managing Director, co-head, Dallas office with JLL Capital Markets. I still have to read that so I don't say HFF <clears throat> uh, by accident. Um, one quick caveat or clarification on both of their behalf so they don't have to say it. Both of these um, executives are with public companies, so what they say is their opinion doesn't reflect the company, doesn't reflect a specific transaction or a client, and please keep your questions. Again, this is a salon format. Please pile in. Please keep your questions general so that they can answer them. Um, 
did I give the Trey and Mike? Did I give the the, the, the clarification properly this time? Perfect. Duly noted. Okay, Works fantastic. Fine. So we've we, we've we've we covered the parliamentary now. procedure on that one. Fantastic. Um, and here's what I'm excited about today. I'm actually was really looking forward to today, as opposed to giving market updates. Here's where cap rates are out and occupancy. I think this is a great time to talk about, and these are the two really good people to talk about what's really happening behind the scenes that's driving what's happening. And then I hope y'all will join me in kind of peppering them a little bit to say, let's prognosticate. Where might we be going where, with what's going on? Because that's the fun part is taking the information and turning it into knowledge and sharing it together. So with that said, I'm going to jump in. Um, again, I know Mike has a board meeting that starts, so he's got a little bit of a hard stop. So we're going to start with uh, Mike Lafitte. And um, I'm saying it all in a little more formal fashion because a lot of our members have been coming back and listening to these calls. And I've been hearing a lot from them how much they've enjoyed listening to these when we put them on the site as a podcast. So again, before we start, Mike and Trey, thank you for taking the time. I know this takes a little prep to spend some time with us and share your thoughts. So Mike Lafitte, you have an interesting chair right now, which is you're here in Dallas. You're here in our markets, but you're also, as the title says, playing on a much broader, even a global stage. I'd love to hear your thoughts kind of a little bit about not just what's happening, but why you think those things are happening right now in, in the real estate and capital markets. Thanks, uh, Mike, very much. It's a pleasure to be here. And, and uh, listen, there's lots of folks on this, on this call that I'm looking at that have you know, uh, great perspectives and, and insights uh, in certainly in, in areas that would be uh, much better than mine. I do have a unique chair sitting over uh, our investment management business. It, it has a CEO, Chuck Leitner, who many of you probably know on this call. Chuck was with Reed for a long time. He's our global CEO of that business. Um, and and I'm responsible for that, but I don't run it day to day, but I'm, I'm pretty darn close to it. And it's uh, it's a global business. It's got 100 20 billion of AUM sitting in it uh, today. And it's really gone through a pretty a substantial transformation. And then my other chair is the CEO now of, Acme on the, of the Trammell Crow Company, which I took over effectively January 1. Um, and our pipeline is, is uh, very active. Uh, we've moved to Europe uh, in the UK. So I've got some interesting things that I can comment on that are going on there as well. Let me, I thought maybe I'd start, Mike, just by stepping back. I, I get a brief from our global head of of uh, research, uh, our economists, and, and it's there's some real interesting things going on, and it's a pretty positive story. I think the outlook for the next couple of years. I'll just and I will throw out some stats as I make my comments this morning, but I'll try to put that into context of what's what's going on. If you start looking at the, the U.S., um, you know I think that everybody feels like the next two years is going to be a pretty strong recovery. We're projecting, you know, the average if you look across the board, uh, something like 0.6 percent GDP growth. This year, unemployment's expected to get back to something like 4.6% uh, on the unemployment front. So back really full employment. And you think about those stats and where those numbers were and where they were projecting to go a year ago, it's pretty, pretty strong. Business confidence, if you look at it across all the indexes that are out there, are extremely high. Um, any stats around travel and leisure, you look at the TSA numbers uh, of uh, just the travel, people are starting to come back um, and, and the same is happening in, in the hotel occupancies. You look at the REIT valuations, you know, they're all up. Every single sector of REITs are up year to date. If you go back to January of 2020, 
the only two that are up from that point uh, will be industrial and, and uh, storage, um, self-storage. But it's, you know, if you go back, with people, everybody's looking for the distress. Where's the opportunity for distress? Well, if you didn't play it in the public markets, you know, in, in March and April, the listed securities just all got hammered. That's where the distress was. And it just, there just hasn't been a lot of distress transactions that are out there. I think there's people sitting around waiting for office distress and other, other places. And there will be some of that, but it's, it really hasn't, uh, there hasn't been a whole lot of it. But the public markets reacted so negatively with all the uncertainty. I mean, if you'd bought anything in March or April of last year, you'd be up at least 50%. So the REITs uh, have, have definitely uh, helped come back. Inflation, there's going to be inflation noise around the corner. You know, anybody that's in the development businesses or around in the construction business is seeing steel and lumber, not only the prices, but the availability of those goods going, uh, getting very, very difficult. Uh, I've seen a lot of research suggesting that, that we're close to a peak and that that will start to settle back down. Who knows? Uh, but but that's, uh, that's just a, some kind of a overall sentiment I think is really good. Obviously, the big, the big question is COVID and kind of the return of that. Uh, if you look at kind of the new cases per day in the United States, we've gone from a peak of 250,000 cases per day to now about 70,000. So those numbers are coming down well. The deaths have gone from 3,200 per day in the U.S. to 1,000. Um, there are some cases now rising up in some of the northern states, New Jersey and Michigan. Michigan, if you look at the stats in Michigan, it's really the younger. Uh, it's 30 to 50-year-olds is where, is where the, uh, the, the cases are, are going up. And if you step back and you look at this kind of race towards herd immunity, which I think most you know, researchers will say 70% um, vaccination, or at least the first vaccination, kind of gets us to that point. The U.S. is sitting at about 32% today. Uh, Europe is way behind. They're at 14%. UK is actually ahead of uh, most of the world at 45%. An APAC number, you look across the countries in Asia Pacific, they're all 10% uh, or lower. Um, India is like 2 or 3%. Indian numbers are going up uh, through the roof right now on COVID. Uh, but in spite of all that, APAC is the most open economy in the world. Um, they're, they're back to work. They're in the office. It's kind of, a, it's kind of bizarre that when you look at some of the stats in terms of their vaccination rates. Uh, but they are, they are open for business. You know, obviously, you know, Mike, we can talk about, you know, especially industrial and multifamily, if you'd like. I've got some stats on certainly industrial. We're very active there, and that story just continues to be phenomenal. I don't know if you want me to go into that or not, but it's, it's the darling of the industry right now. Office is a huge question mark in terms of just uh, the uncertainty around it, the work from home, what's the future of it going to look like. But beds and sheds right now is, is the theme around the world, uh, for sure. Um, it is just driving you know, performance, but, you know, office is not dead, and we can talk about any of those sectors, but I maybe want to start with industrial, but I'm not sure where you want to go. Yeah, I'd love for you to start with industrial, and, and even more specifically, um, not just industrial here, but you're looking at the supply chain globally, industrial globally, and um, how that is changing with internet, with COVID, with economies, and yeah. how that works in terms of warehousing, container flows, just kind of big picture. Yeah. What, well, what part of that do you find the most intriguing that just you would not have guessed or it just seems to be something that you think has teeth and durability? Yeah, well, the ultimate driver is is e-commerce e penetration and, and just the inventories, what's going on kind of behind the scenes. And, and it's, uh, you know, the U.S. has gone from what, something like 8%. Uh, to some close to 20. 
if you look around the world, uh, UK is at 23%, France is at 13, Germany's at 14, Spain's at seven and a half. I think China leads the world at something close to 40% e-commerce e penetration. So it's just a massive driver, you know, and there's been a lot of debate on, okay, we've catapulted from 8% to close to 20 in the US. Once we're back to normal, is that going to change? Are people's you know, buying habits going to change? And I think the consensus is no not going to change that if before COVID it would have taken us two or three or four years to get to that kind of penetration, this just accelerated it. And I, I believe the, the, the general consensus is that it's there and it's there to stay and it can, and, and it will likely continue to go up. So that's a huge driver. You know, everybody's seen all the stories about, you know, all the cargo ships lined up outside the ports in, in California and other places. And it's true. That's just the, the, the pipeline of, of inventories coming in the safety stock, that uh, that these three that, that the providers and the the uh, retailers are trying to you know stockpile for certain things just because this you know you hear about whether it's ketchup, toilet paper or whatever the, the shortage is of the day, you know that's a real it's a real thing. Uh, but when you look at the fundamentals of, of industrial in the U.S., we just launched a, a platform across the U.K. Uh, and in uh, Europe, we haven't really started. We just hired a team, and they're just starting literally just starting to show up. We did a lot of research um, looking at those markets and their, you know, their vacancy rates are all 5% or, or lower. Uh, and there's just capital wanting to get, you know, more and more of it once industrial and you just can't, it's just hard to find. So let uh, me, can I, can I repeat something you said? I'm going to put words in your mouth, but you tell me if I'm understanding what you're saying, which was COVID acted in this, in this conversation as an accelerant of a technological evolution that was already in place. And the only question is, did it swing this far and come back a little bit? Did it swing that far and stay there? And therefore, as a real estate company, both as a brokerage picking your focal points and as an investor, you're saying, I think that that growth, that we aren't going to overbuild it, that we're building out a new logistic pipeline that has durability. Is that kind of what you're saying? Yeah, it is what I'm saying. And I, and I think the forecast, you know, who, you know, the big question is how long does it go and does it continue at the pace? I'll give you some numbers in the U.S. to kind of put it into context. You know, we're sitting today, U.S. is 4.6% vacant in industrial. It's a 15 billion square foot market overall. Um, we've had positive absorption for the last 43 quarters. <laughs> Say it again, 43 quarters of positive absorption. Our research is saying for the next seven years, which is as far out as they go, they're projecting positive absorption uh, again. So it's a, it has been a, it has been a, a incredible run. We did last year, we absorbed 223 million square feet. We built about 264 for the last three years. We built almost 250 million feet in the U S each year uh, for the last three years running. You know, the, the other, the big theme, and I see Brian and others that, you know, that are, you know, industrial experts and have been all their career. Rent growth is very, very real in a lot of these markets year over year. The, the U S was up 8% on industrial uh, rent growth. That's phenomenal number. And, We've, we're projecting the top cities for the next three years that will, will grow at 5% or more include, uh, where's my list? I know Dallas is in there. Phoenix is in there. Yeah, New York. There's uh, Phoenix, Inland Empire, DFW, Atlanta, and Baltimore. Those are the top five that we're projecting rent growth for the next three years running. That will be 5% plus. There's, I'm here, I'm seeing, we're underwriting a lot of industrial deals all around the country. And she said Phoenix, Inland Empire, Atlanta, and... Uh, Dallas and Baltimore. 
Baltimore. Okay, so Baltimore. I'd throw New Jersey in there. New Jersey's seeing some phenomenal uh, rent, rent, rental growth. About the land numbers are all over the place. You can buy you can buy land and industrial land in thirty to three to six bucks a foot in Texas. You can it'll be sixty-five bucks in Ontario, and it could be over a hundred in, in yeah, North Jersey. That's fascinating. I heard there was two trades just recently in Dallas between nine and ten dollars a foot for industrial. So whereas everybody used to take their land trying to get from industrial to multifamily to up their land value, they're trying to get from multifamily to industrial to up. Never would have thought of that. Oh, okay, listen. I'm going to throw you a hard curveball, Mike. Okay. Because it's the only chance I'll ever get in my life to throw you a hard curveball. You ready? I'm ready. I want you to juxtapose asset classes because you have a great purview on industrial. And I want you to contrast that and compare that to retail. You talked about the growth of industrial, the spread, a shift in supply chain and consumer. Yet we have all this retail real estate in the United States at a national or local, however you want to address it. How are y'all seeing your retail? I know it's not the darling of the conversation. We've got some retail folks here that might really want to chime in. I saw Alan Shore and Ray and other people, but I'd love to hear your perspective on retail real estate juxtaposed in the same conversation to that industrial growth where the industrial isn't just logistics, it's also actually a direct to consumer. So it's semi stepping into the retail place. How do you see that? Well, there are, as you said, a lot of other people on this call that are a, a lot deeper in retail. I, I, you know, a couple of things that are, the, the net lease retail is holding up, the grocery anchor retail is holding up. You know, there's, there's plenty of it, the bigger boxes and a lot of the challenges of just vacancies, COVID knocked, you know, a lot out. Uh, but the strategy for the retailers obviously has been shifting and that's not new. I mean, the, the mix between bricks and mortar versus online and all the things around it, the regulation around it, the, the percentage rent issues around it, you know, uh, 1031 exchange impacts, if that ever comes, comes along, you know, what's the impact of that? There's, there's this thing certainly, certainly circling, but the consumer obviously behind it all and GDP growth and all those things is, is, a, is a, I think, a, a tailwind for, for retail. But it's going to be reimagined. Uh, but it's certainly been it's certainly been hit. I mean, everybody knows that. You know, our, our, the investment sales side has been pretty darn tough, uh, with the exception of those things that I just mentioned—the net lease stuff and the, the grocery anchored kind of community stuff. I don't know if others want to weigh in here, but I'd, I'd open it up <clears throat> for that specific to well, retail. Mike, in a lot of ways, grocery anchored retail is an example. It's part of the logistics supply chain. I mean, if you think about it, right? It's sort of the ultimate last mile location. You saw Amazon buy Whole Foods, and I'm not sure if they were that forward thinking at the time, but that sort of worked out pretty well for them. Yeah. And you've had institutional investors now starting to think, well, certain retail, <laughs> being the best example, it really is part of logistics. You know, I know they may be fooling themselves because they want more logistics allocation, but that's the way you think through the logic. That's sort of the necessity base where people commerce often. And then the other side of retail, and there's other people on this call know a lot better than I do, you know, the, the connection about what retail provides, the entertainment, the entertainment, all that stuff that was in vogue pre-COVID, I believe is going to come raging back. I mean, humans want contact. And the examples we've had where starts, states are starting to open up, we've seen probably, you know, unsafely, we've seen bars and restaurants open to capacity. And so I, 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 I'm, I'm particularly bullish on aspects of the retail space from both the logistics angle and the entertainment angle. 
Great, and I'm gonna, um, I, I would like to thank Trey and Mike for just um, nominating Alan Shore and maybe one or two other people for our next month's meeting, where maybe what we do is not talk about the, the balance between industrial and retail, but talk about how they're starting to morph together where Trey, like you said, and Amazon and a Whole Foods morph into one. That's a great subject. Alan Shore, um, I'll call you in a little while, but I'm putting a date on your schedule for next month and we'll put a, have a conversation about that. Are you in? It, it, I am, I am all in. It is a, it is a, an appropriate, timely issue. Trey and Mike are, are right on the money. We were seeing a blending of, it used to be industrial was so distinctly different than retail. And now we're starting to see it blend. And, and that changes the definition of the type of retail we're looking at, size, design, um, services. And to Trey's point, uh, the, the entertainment restaurant side of things is just going to absolutely burst uh, with demand because it's something that the computer can't displace. It can only augment, it can only make it better. And so there are some really interesting things that we're seeing and planning toward and be delighted to uh, share at least what we're seeing with you guys on one of these calls. Great. So, uh, Linda, we now have next month's, uh, and everybody knows um, what we're going to be talking about, and I can't wait to, but I want to get back to Mike because I can't let him off the hook this easy before he gets to some pretend board meeting <laughs> running, running the galaxy. I got to get him back into this. So let me ask you, Mike, um, from your seat, which is kind of interesting, some people are so in-depth, they know every detail, and they can go from the crack in the sidewalk up. You're kind of at that higher level at a global on what you're seeing. I want you to prognosticate for, for a couple minutes here. I want to, um, I'd like for you to talk about where you think you see office, I know it's not the darling of the moment, and, and um, where do you see the whole, what's driving the dialogue? You know, we have work from home, flex work, work from work. You have Hannah, and Hannah gives you that enterprise format of flexibility. We've got Lindsay here, and maybe she'll pile in after you. Talk about what you're seeing in that and what you think is really driving and where you think it's, I think everybody wants to hear kind of some of your thoughts of what's in front of us. Yeah, well, the, the office sector, there's still just, there's a lot of uncertainty and depending on who you talk to, you know, what's going to be the impact to the, to the square footage. You know, we've got a five to $6 billion, uh, six, five to 6 billion square foot market in the U.S. And I think most research will say that occupiers will use somewhere between 10 and 15 15% less space going forward that, you know, that they will find some new mix of how they uh, allow people to have a flexible work schedule. Everybody's gotten used to it. I'm sitting at home today. You know, my, my typical day, my typical day is starting in the mornings at home and I'll slide into the office and back and forth and nobody's in the office that much anyway. But I think people have kind of gotten used to, and, and there's some great aspects of having some flexibility moving around technologies enabled us to do all this stuff from anywhere, from your car, from your house, from the office or anywhere. So I, I do think it would be naive to say it's not going to have some lasting impact because I think it will. But office is, is by no means going away. There's a lot of the largest occupiers in the world that are really completely committed to getting back to the office. 
we've just kind of announced September 7th is our official day. June, June on is kind of optional, but and encouraged to come back. But really, you know, starting in September, it's going to almost mandated to come back. Um, and we're seeing a lot of the big banks saying June, July, you know, we're coming back. You've seen technology companies saying the same thing. So I don't think it's going away. The flex part, I think, is uh, going to be, you know, there'll be that will continue to evolve. You know, we were, came out of the gates with a model that just was not sustainable. The, the, the growth rate was just, everybody looked at it and they said, what's this valuation? How does this work? It's a mismatch of, of long and short, long on the leases, short on the subleases. And it just was a, you know, they were ahead of their time, but it just obviously, uh, some it's that, that saying of things appear to be too good to be true. Sometimes they are, that was the case, but there was something to it. So we started uh, HANA, which was our own flexible uh, kind of product. Uh, aimed at really dedicated space, not co-working where you're just selling individual memberships, but enterprise clients that would want, you know, somebody like a, a accounting firm or a bank that says, listen, we'll take part of our, you know, or our office footprint's going to be fixed, you know, headquarters, but we want some hub and spoke. We want some flexibility. We actually merged HANA into Industrious. Uh, we announced that. We took a, a pretty major stake in Industrious. We looked at them, thought they were uh, you know, the best operator. They got about 100 units now in the U.S. And we made a substantial investment in them, merged our HANA business into it. Uh, we'll end up with close to a 40% stake in Industrious. Uh, you know, they're not the largest in the world. The largest is still WeWork and IWG. But they're, you know, they, if you just study that space, it's, it's, uh, it's unproven. I mean, it's been around for a long, long time. Executive suites have been around for a long, long time. But this is a different kind of product. So that will be a, a part of the mix. We're making a bet on it. But office is not going to go away. I, there's smart money starting to move into office. And I would tell you, there are office trends going on as we speak. And it very, if it's quality and it's leased, you know, we're seeing some trades that are going to be setting record prices in some of these markets. Trade can, can go a lot deeper on that. But we've got earnouts on some of our office development deals that we'll harvest this year at very attractive prices. So I think there's going to be winners and losers in office. Um, but I think the quality office buildings, you know, life sciences is starting to kind of emerge as an adjacent uh, kind of business, but it's still very, very small, but a lot of money looking at life sciences as well. And I'm going to ask you one more question, then I want to open it up, and I know you've got a hard stop. Here's my question for you. With your Flex HANA Industrious mm -hmm. and the work from home, how much of that do you see overlap where O'Boyle has his office, he goes every day to the office, and the people who flex more overlap into that enterprise space where they can, a company can accordion it more easily, or do you see those as separate conversations? Right now, going forward, how do you kind of see the flex, work from home, are those autonomous, are those starting to merge into a common conversation to a bit? I think the flex will lead to more free address uh, office environment rather than fixed and dedicated desk. That's the, you know, the debate is, and we went kind of free address with, with our offices about three or four years ago, but it's, it, it's kind of a, an exaggeration because people tend to come in and go to the same areas. But I think it's like a parking garage. You can overbook a parking garage by 20 to 30%. You've got a thousand spots, you can sell 1200. So the same is true with office. I think when you go free address, you can you can reduce your footprint, and you if you've got 100 employees, you can you can you know you can have you've got 150 seats or 150 employees. You can you can plan it around 100 seats because you know that not everybody's going to be there. So I think every and it's not a one size fits all. You know, a lot of firms will st still say I'm dedicated. My people are coming in. They're sitting at the same desk, 
But that evolution of a move towards free address has been going on way before COVID. You know, uh, now call centers, those kinds of things are dedicated desks, so that footprint doesn't change. But I think it will be uh, where people, and that's why I think the, the footprint can compress. You know, these large banks, they've got 100 million square feet each, you know, anywhere from 75 to 125 million square feet. They're huge. They're bigger than a lot of REITs in terms of their footprint. AT&T's got over 200 million square feet. So I think they, they will, and, and oh, by the way, for the last 15 years, they've been getting smaller. Uh, all been getting smaller. So this, I think this again, accelerates it a little bit. It's not a new thing. They've all been getting smaller. Um, I mean, the banks have probably reduced their footprint by a third over the last five years anyway. So the, the fact that they're going to just continue to get smaller, it's a headwind for the office business. But as long as the there's job growth and, and, and other things going on, you know, they, they can start to offset. Yeah, thank you. That's really fascinating. And, you know, that's, it's interesting to hear it from the industry and Hanuk perspective versus from the Jason McCann or Lindsey Wilson perspective. And that'd probably be a really interesting conversation to have coming up for people who are really vested in that whole dialogue on what that means, not just in flex free address, but also back to the offices are changing and more fluid and teaming and how we do that, what Jason is doing and what Lindsay is seeing in that conversation. So that'd be a great follow-up. We have time for a one last question for Mr. Lafitte and he's gonna hit his board meeting. Open mic, salon style, everybody, anybody want a question? But it, you gotta hit him with the zinger. Don't give him a softball pitch. Somebody pile <laughs> in. I've got a zinger, but I'm gonna I'm gonna let him off the hook today. We'll do it. We'll do it later. Thanks, Trey. You got it. All right. Um, so I know you really have a hard stop, and I want to honor that, um, Mike. Thanks. Thank well, first, congratulations. Congratulations again on CV thank success you. right now for your success and what you're doing, and thank you for taking the time out to share with thanks. us. I, I, listen, I, I've enjoyed being a part of this. I remember when this all started. I was everybody. Nobody was in the office. I was out in the. East Texas, my little cabin, walking around in the woods, listening on these calls. I, I remember Ray talk, telling everybody about what was going on at Casino and all the retailers. It was, it was, this was, you know, when, when a crisis goes on, it's just great to be connected. And I, and I, I applaud the, the uh, real estate uh, group to getting together like this and, and transparency and, and just the ability to kind of share with each other because it's helpful. It's been helpful. Well, thank, so. thank you for saying that. It's all about Bill Cawley. It's, it's a all Bill Cawley. That's Isn't it always though? It is always about Bill Kelly. All right, Mike, I know you Thanks, need to sign guys. off. Um, right. We're going to transition over to Trey, but I don't think it's really a change of the conversation, but a little more of a take on it. And Trey was nice enough to take a little time with me on a pre-call. And what we really talked about was everybody here knows all the stats. If you didn't, you wouldn't be here. You know all the stats. It's really about the kind of deeper of why things are happening, what's pushing them behind the scenes. And again, kind of kind of get Trey to jump out there on a ledge, get out over his skis and maybe make some, uh, some crazy proje projections that we can taunt him about at fight night in September when we all get a chance to get back together later on. Rick Pernini, there's your plug. Um, so Ray, I, I tell you Nice, Mike, thank you. Yeah, there you go. Trey, I'm gonna tee you up here for a second. Um, you were talking about something kind of really fascinating when we were talking the other day, started talking about, we went back to, you know, you always go back a couple cycles and think about what drove them and how they evolved. 
And one of the things that was fascinating about the late 90s where the REITs were so liquid and there was so much over NAV that they were the first to market in development. They had liquidity that gave them firepower to move and then the market shifted and the, the Lucy's and the Bill Colley's had a big advantage and they started really moving in the market. The market sometimes has a natural power base. And Trey started talking about Blackstone, even though it's a big Goliath, Trey, why don't you pick up on that? Because it's really interesting, not just about Blackstone, really, but what they represent. Yeah, they're probably over-talked about, but they're sort of an interesting company just to bring up because they're so well-known. And they've, they've evolved and really been a leader in a lot of ways. I think the line of thought we were going through yesterday, the day before, I can't recall when we talked, was really around how they've formed capital and how they've evolved as a company. Most people know Blackstone in most of their careers is an opportunity fund. Really, Blackstone is the largest alternative asset manager but in the real estate space, they're, they're an opportunity fund. It's through their Brett vehicles, which is what they're most known for. And for most of my career, that's all they were. And they looked up, you know, smartly and said, well, we've got to do more things for more people. And so they started creating new vehicles. They created a core fund, which now Andrew, by the way, I'm co-head of Dallas. My other co-head is Andrew, who's on the line. So I'm going to pull him off mute on occasion. You have one complete head between the two of us. Um, but they went into a core vehicle six, seven, eight years ago, and now they're the second or third largest core vehicle. So they have a different sort of cost of capital and ability to go buy in a different space. They looked long game and decided that their, their traditional capital sources, LPs, sovereign wealth funds, were, were not going to be there forever. Pension funds were really ultimately a declining you know, investor base and said, what's next? And it's really the retail investor, both you know, through the retail channels and also high net worth and family offices. They started BREIT, which most on this call are aware of. So when you think about Blackstone today, I mean, they're really a allocator of capital more than anything. Um, you know, b is an example of raising a billion dollars a month in that vehicle that needs to deliver a five net coupon. So can you imagine the buying power behind all that? We were in a meeting with Nadim, who runs all of America's Craig, for- Craig, just for a second, for the, yeah. some that might be listening to this that may be a little less familiar, B, can you talk about how that's a retail platform versus institutional just for a second? Yeah, it's a, it's, a, it's a public REIT that basically is right. Think of the old Inland days and Wells REIT days. And, you know, there's many other examples of that that was really traditionally raised money through broker dealers, super high load, 10 to 15% loads, um, really targeting the retail investor in 25 to $200,000 increments, 25000 to $250,000 increments. Blackstone really reinvent, reinvented that strategy with a much lower load, more traditional, more liquid, vehicle. And so they're still raising money through broker dealers and through RIAs and other, you know, instruments that are literally still in the twenty-five dollars to $50,000 increment range. If you think about that, a billion dollars a month at $50,000 a spot. And, that, and that's, when you were talking about that, you were saying they were going into two and a half asset classes. I like that. Yeah, well, you talk about I, the two and a half. Yeah. And that's not a Blackstone thing necessarily. Blackstone's always been particularly thematic and disciplined in how they invest. That's sort of a good way to set the stage. You want to know what the why of all sort of some of the lunacy you're seeing in certain product, product types happening across the country. Lunacy is my word. You can not quote me on that. Um, all of the world's capital essentially got the same investment playbook in 2021. Literally all institutional capital basically got the same two pages and it said, I have to invest in two and a half asset classes. And those two and a half asset classes, and Mike alluded to it earlier, beds, sheds, and I'll add alts. So alt stands for alternatives. So beds being all multifamily largely and other product types within you know, housing, 
sheds, which is largely logistics or industrial, and alternatives, and there's a myriad of alternatives. So the 2.5 is alternatives aren't really a defined asset class. So every institutional investor is going long industrial, going long multifamily, and picking their favorite alternative, life sciences, SFRs, cold storage, cell storage, et cetera, data center. And when you have global capital with increasing capital flows, increasing allocations to one sector, all wanting to be in two and a half asset classes, it typically doesn't end very well, right? In fact, I don't think I've ever seen that much institutional alignment in my 25 year career. I've never seen capital all being on the exact same play playbook. And so this is what Bert and I chatted about on a couple calls ago, because Bert's obviously an advisor and he's playing off that same sheet of music. The differentiated approach to that same strategy that the, particularly the advisors think they're really smart is we're just gonna go do that, but we're not, we're too smart to go buy three and a half, four cap core. We'll just go develop it. So now what's happened, the results of this outcome in the last six to 12 months is incredibly dramatically compressing cap rates in industrial and multifamily and in many of the alternatives. Anyone that participates in those spaces and those calls has seen that and knows that. And certainly if you're trying to acquire it, you're seeing it. We've okay, so a, hold on. So Trey, I want to yeah. double back and ask you a question. I'm going to dial in on that. Let's go back to industrial because we've been talking about it. It's one of the two and a half. Everybody wants to increase their allocation, their exposure, right? It's got the institutional checkbox, but the yields get so compressed because the cap rates, what you were saying, they said, okay, we still want to be industrial, but we can't buy it. So we're going to build it and get that extra 100, 150 bips and get there. And then more and more people start building. Talk about how much cold storage we have in the United States and how much we're built in totality and talk about how much we're building. I know probably nobody on the phone's on cold storage. This is a stunning statistic he told me. Yeah, so there's two sort of sound, sound bites are always fun to allude to because you can use them and talk about it, but they're good illustrations. So two sound bites in the alternative space. Right now in the United States of America, cold storage is the oldest physical inventory of any asset class. Most cold storage facilities are 20, 30, 40 years old because there's really no one that's built them for any reason. And there's reasons in the logistics supply chain that we need more cold storage, particularly with COVID and e-commerce and everything else. So the amount of cold storage planned, proposed, or under construction in the United States right now is in excess of the entire inventory of cold storage in the United States right now. So we're talking about a situation where we're looking at more than doubling the, the current inventory of an asset class. Now, the counter argument is there's obsolescence and some of the older buildings are gonna be retrofitted and be different things, but it's still a remarkable stat. Another one to me that just, I heard this yesterday that just blew my mind right before Mike, you and I talked, um, life sciences. And again, just think through what this means and think about the implications of capital flows and cap rates and yields and risk. Life sciences is the light switches on, fundamentals and capital flows. So both sides of it are, are going in the same direction. Boston's the largest life science market in the US and perhaps in the world. They have a 35 million square foot life science inventory between labs and life science dedicated buildings. This is not office buildings. These are dedicated life science buildings. The current plan proposed and under construction inventory in the city, the greater Cambridge and Boston area is 45 million square feet. So again, I don't know how many times in our history, and all, we have a lot of really successful developers on this call, how many times you're underwriting the deal thinking that you're in the process of doubling or going 1.5 times the current inventory of the entire market with what's under construction. It's just, again, I don't. So let me, let me translate that. that let me from. translate that. Trey Morseback just made the tulip call of 2021. For those of y'all who know the history of bubbles from the 1600s, we just got the tulip call for the the great tulip bubble. Okay, Trey, I want to 
step you back and say, if we have everybody on, I love the way you said it, the globe got on the same playbook for the first time, but everybody's working the same playbook in 2021, the two and a half playbook, then that gets overstretched. Then all of a sudden you start saying, so some people have to go back because the other asset classes, the cap rates start going up. So there's a lot more spread. So then they go back and hit the spread on office and on other classes. Talk about that and how that keeps us from seeing an illiquid market there. Yeah, well, it all starts with just massive capital flows, right? So if you go start with the premise that we see have more money in our sector than we ever have had, and we're seeing increase in allocations, we don't see that abating anytime soon. Um, the argument could be made, retail's sort of an anomaly, but in parts of retail, the cap rates have compressed as well in grocery anchors, et cetera. But what's happened is let's just stipulate that office and retail cap rates have stayed flat. With industrial and multifamily cap rates compressing 100 basis points in the last 12 months, the spread is at historically high levels. So if you think about the main four food groups, the delta, the spread between the traditional four food groups really in my history has never been as large. And so at some point, people cannot continue to chase cap rates down to three. Again, another soundbite for you, we're selling a lot of multifamily in Dallas right now. And really with very few exceptions, almost every trade we have in the market that's trading or pricing right now is in threes. We have a couple in the twos. Now those are value add deals, so it's a little bit strange math, but when you have yields that low, it can't help, investors can't help themselves. We're in a yield seek and you know, a yield starved environment globally to go find other places for yield. So office and retail that makes sense, start to get more attention. Mike alluded to that earlier that we're starting to see some sentiment shift. And I would say, I would make it more dramatic. I think we're seeing a significant sentiment shift. That doesn't mean it's happening yet. We haven't, we can't point to a bunch of trades, but the narrative around office both at the fundamental level and tenancy and CEOs talking about uses of office plus capital. So there's the fundamental side, right? That drives real estate and then there's capital. And when they're both aligned, it's interesting. And so industrial has that favored right now. Well, right now the, the sentiment shift in, in office and Andrew knows better than I, he's on the call, he can comment, is in my opinion, the last 60 days shift is dramatically, much more dramatically than I would have expected. And I'm pretty bullish on office, by the way. And it's really moving in the right direction. Andrew, anything, uh, we talked about this, Andrew, at lunch yesterday in a different kind of group for a second. Anything you want to jump in on that one and add in? Uh, no, uh, I, I was saying it's always tough to follow Trey because he he hits it pretty good. Um, the sheds and beds comparison I heard uh, expanded yesterday into meds and creds, um, which I think is, is actually very uh, apropos as well because one thing we haven't talked about a lot is, you know, the, the only part of the office market that is attracting capital in a, a way that would even be comparable to some of the multi-industrial is on the credits. So we are, you know, still setting all-time records on price per square foot and yields if it's a long enough lease with a high enough credit. Yeah, there, there was this kind of, and I, I don't, you know, nobody hopes for the demise of anybody, but they sometimes hope to see a market dip so they can buy in. And we really didn't see, apart from maybe a Craig Hall could talk about this in probably better detail than anybody on the phone in the hotel market, a, a, a severe liquidity. But other than that, we didn't really see it, did we, Trey? The market seemed to continue to be very fluid. These press down, it flows in, people start to develop, that's still in front, putting the yield, and they go right back to the next asset class. 
before it comes to market in distress. Is that what we're seeing, a constantly flowing market that keeps rebalancing? Is this the fastest speed you've seen it do that in, in your career? It's, it's unbelievable. And you have, I don't know, I've lost count how many trillions of dollars the Fed has decided to ingratiate us with as, a, as an economy in the last year. But it has a lot to do with that and some of the policies. You know, Mike alluded to it, but there was a moment of distress um, and it was about 15 days in the public markets. Like if you wanted to play COVID distress, you had to move within 15 days in the public markets and you would have killed it. I'm talking about dramatic shifts, like within the, in the real estate space, particularly in the REIT market, um, not just going long equities in March. I mean, that's clearly a different strategy. So yes, I agree. And if you think, I thought about this last night, Mike, I thought it may be interesting to folks on the call, sort of what were the, so what were the narratives that were starting to pop out of COVID six, nine, 12 months ago that have already started to be debunked, right? So like, what were people saying in terms of prognostication, you know, secular shifts, you know, paradigm shifts, all that kind of stuff, you know, as, as recently as six to nine months ago that, that really already start to look not very smart. Um, one of which is distress. There was a lot of money um, created and formed around distress, raised around distress early in COVID because people perceived this to be a distress situation. And the fact is, and Craig could, could disagree with me on the hotel side, that may be the only, only exception, there hasn't been any. Um, and even in hotels, there's plenty of liquidity. It's a cost of capital issue. It's not a, it's not a you know, liquidity issue. So distress was a fleeting blip, and I don't think we're going to see much of it other than where you normally would see. So by the way, office is going to have some level of distress, but we were headed that way anyways. If you have B office in the middle of nowhere in a suburban location that doesn't have a there there, well, that was in distress pre-COVID, right? Those were out of favor. So, you know, I think distress is one of them. I think the, you know, work from home is like the new paradigm and the whole world's going to shift and office is going to be, you know, have really, you know, consequential consequences. I, I think that was overplayed. We could talk more about that. I think the retail conversation that people said e-commerce is here to stay, it's really going to crush retail. I think re retail is in the process of reinventing itself pre-COVID. I think retail will continue and I think it will thrive in many cases. In fact, probably outperform from a, from a yield perspective in many cases, if you know what you're doing. Um, the other one that people love to grab onto is, oh, you know, the, the urban gateways are dead and, and urban locations are dead. It's all about the suburbs, right? There was a lot of data behind that. People ran to the suburbs, both to buy houses and companies went out there and a lot of things happened. Part of that was happening pre-COVID. This was an accelerant, but we're already starting to see, particularly young professionals, want to be back in urban environments. I was on a call with a, arguably one of the largest you know, fund managers in the world yesterday, not, not Blackstone, another, another name brand, and they basically came out of their strategic planning meeting yesterday and said, we just decided we're going to go long gateways. We think the whole gateways are done, you know, argument is, is you know, lunacy and we're going to go long now because it, they're so out of favor. So all these things really in the last 60 to 90 days, really as we started to open and started to articulate opening and health concerns are starting to abate and vaccines, once all those things start to coalesce, all these things about, oh, the world's going to change, don't feel like they're going to change as much. Now, there are going to be changes. I'm not naive, but I think those are interesting narratives that were so profound six months ago that all of a sudden starting to not sound so smart. So those are those will be fun to watch. You know, Trey, that was worth the call right there. That was awesome to go back and recapture a six or nine month where everybody's head is at and what the, you know, it, it does bring out the pathologies, your, your fear of um, big shifts that actually aren't deeply thought out and they balance out. And those were fantastic. 
I want to call on Craig Hall for a second, Craig, because you have both debt and equity. Um, I want you to measure what Trey just talked about. And how are you seeing that? And does what you're seeing and doing in both debt and equity line up or anything you'd like to add to false narrative or narratives that didn't play out or narratives you think are going to come? I, I, I think the uh, narrative did not play out that there was distress uh, in uh, in the spring of last year, we got back uh, two hotels. We had 28 hotel loans, uh, just about $800 million. And we've only gotten back two. Um, in um, everybody else's, you know, we may get another two back. Um, and <clears throat> we've been looking at hotel auctions. They're not going off at cheap prices. They're, they're going off at below replacement cost, but it's going to take a while to ramp up. And I think if you look out two or three years, hotels are going to be really strong. It's going to take a rough time to get there. They've lost a lot of money, but people who can afford to hold on have held on. And people who needed to have turned them over to lenders. There may still be a lot in default to get to work through, but there's tons of money on the sidelines to chase everything. And, no and, Craig, and Craig, on your debt and equity, Trey made a comment that not just specific to hotel, but more, I think he was making more generic. He, he referred to hotel, but generic. There's no lack of debt or equity. It's simply a price of what is the debt or the equity. Would you concur with that in the, where you're competing in the market? Is that how you're feeling it? Yes and no. Uh, uh, yes, I generally agree with that. I think we've picked a niche, which is we do construction lending uh, for people who aren't class A plus that can go into a bank and put in enough uh, equity. Banks are still kind of 50%, uh, 60%, and we go to 75%. So that's, uh, that's our niche. And I worry that a six months to a year from now, we could have a lot more competition than we have now. And, that, and we may have to pull back. But that right now, it's a great market for, for what we're doing. Well, Craig, if you're worried about the competition, just let Craig, just let Trey know. He'll go and plug their microphones also, and you, maybe you can hold the market down another six months there. There you go. Um, I'd like to invite anybody to jump in, um, open mic, and ask Trey questions along these lines. He really talked about some of the narratives that didn't play out. If anybody wants to add one in there, ask Trey about that. Um, Y'all have heard too much from me. Everybody pile in. Um, Trey's our uh, victim. Ask, ask questions. Trey, how long does this uh, go on? And where, where, where do you see things in three, four, five years? What, how, how does this play out? Right. That, that's always, look, you, yourself and many others on this call a lot smarter and have seen a lot many more cycles than I have to answer that question. Um, you know, I alluded to it. I, I, I probably shouldn't have word, used the word lunacy earlier on. That's probably not nice to my industrial and multifamily friends. Um, but right now that that market just feels unsustainable um, in terms of the trajectory it's currently going. Um, and by the way, what I didn't say earlier, that was in light of a 50 to 75 base point increase in treasuries. So we're, we've seen a 50 to 100 base point compression in cap rates while treasuries are going up. Like that's usually not the case. So um, I, I already stated in one of them, Craig, I think you're going to see more money start to move into other asset classes, which has not been the case for a year. Um, you know, office being a good example. You know, Ray could tell you about the story on, on retail most recently. We just took Village on the Parkway, which is a, you know, 100 plus million dollar, largely F&B based retail center. Has a Whole Foods, but it's largely F&B. And it was, we had 16 offers initially. 
And this was a hundred plus million dollar asset and ended up being a really dogfight at the end. So we're starting to see money start to move. We will continue to see money move into those, those sectors. Um, I think you will also see, and this was probably going to be a safety net for us all. Um, there really does not seem to be any signs of abatement of capital flows into our sector. And there's some sort of macro reasons for that. Um, but global capital is starting to move, continue to move into real estate um, in ways that we, you know, are surprising to us. And so when you just have more sand and sandbox, it, 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 it props up a market. Um, and I think we're going to continue to see more of that. The best example of that was anybody that knows institutional management or, or CIO type, you know, methodologies. Balance sheet management, you, you want to have a lot of money in equities and fixed income and alternative. That's usually how most institutional investors think. Real estate being plus or minus 10% of that, fixed income being 40 to 50% of that, fixed income being bonds in, in all in capacities. We're seeing, because fixed income essentially yields are flat to negative globally, um, we're seeing fixed income dollars move into real estate. And that's sort of a, in some ways, a scary proposition. I mean, you're talking about four to five X order of magnitude market. And if it starts to think real estate is a surrogate and moves more money to our sector, I don't really know what that means. It, it, it's a net positive, but it could put a lot of pressure on pricing really in a good way. So that, that's sort of another thing to continue to watch. Um, look, Craig, you and others can tell me, but I, I don't know how we, we steer clear of inflation. You know, if you think about what's headed, I know we could have said that 10 years ago after the last GFC bailout, but now we've got another whatever trillions of dollars now pumped into the system and our, Craig, our construction friends on the call and developers can tell you that we're damn sure seeing it on the construction side. Um, you know, that's not sustainable. I would submit to you that we're, we're as involved in development equity raising is more so than anyone in the country. And we have a number of projects that are stalled or on hold because of construction costs. Just they're, they're, they're not able to be capitalized at current rents. So the, the potential, you know, decline of supply in certain product types that are needed in this country, particularly housing, because of construction cost rises is something to watch and that could impact us in the next couple of years. Um, all right. Hey, Trey, uh, Rick Purdue, Trey, I was going to ask you that exact question and you already hit it. We're pricing three different multifamily deals and I would say costs are up 15% in the last six months. I mean, it's, it's nothing I've ever seen in my career. And, and, but I get the sense everybody is saying, well, I'm going to keep going. Hopefully everybody to my right and left stops their project uh, so we can get some uh, sanity back in this world, but I'm going to keep going. Or are you truly seeing uh, deals not get capitalized because of this lunacy uh, or the, is the next guy standing up right after the first guy says no? We've seen large-scale industrial developers who are working with tell us that steals so off the rails from a cost and availability, perspe availability perspective it's delaying projects at the very least. Um, in the multifamily space right now Rick you're seeing people just accept lower yields so we are seeing some people that say, I wanted a six now, a five and a half return on cost sounds fine. And, you know, we've seen the same compression. And again, they're following the exit cap rates, right? So that makes sense as a, as a developer. But those exit cap rates, you could argue, are somewhat artificial because of the flows of capital. So, um, that, again, this is me talking a little bit more opinion. Uh, you know, we're, we're, you know, industrial today is squarely in the fours, unless you're in the, on the coast and it's in the threes on an exit basis. We're seeing, we're selling 12 to 18 month industrial forwards on spec. So basically if you're a developer with an industrial building and you put a spade of you know, dirt in the ground and you deliver 12 to 18 months later on a spec building, we're selling that at a five cap on stabilized. 
So what's the so, so Jay, what's the what's the what's the uh, forward arbitrage? Fifty bips, seventy five, a hundred, zero. zero. Everybody yeah, gets only. There's no forward premium. All they're doing is splitting developmental profit with these developers. So which is an institutional. So you're saying the institutions are calling that they think a year from now that cap rate won't move and they will get ahead what they wouldn't be able to get at today's pricing because it's going to be there or worse. So they're better off doing it. That's unbelievable. It's supply and demand and risk. So they're willing to take time, currency issue and leasing risk for 50 bips versus taking leasing risk at CO, which by the way, we're selling those two vacant in the fours. Yeah, so it's just a matter of what risk you want to take. And I can speak to that too. We just broke ground on an industrial development in San Antonio uh, two weeks ago, and we already have an offer for an instant $2 million profit on the deal. But of course, what are you going to do with it? Um, we want the long-term asset and we want the long-term cash flow. So we're, we're going to just uh, stick with it, but it's, um, it's crazy. All right. Um, we're going to get a little short on time. Lucy looked like she was building up a question. Lucy, did you have a question you want to throw out there? We got you on mute. No, I'm notes. I'm, I'm trying to, I'm trying to figure, get these notes down so all my kids can figure out what we're supposed to be doing. I'm just <laughs> She's probably going to accuse me of being too optimistic. She does that. All right. Much. And I, I, I've been sitting here a little worried while we're on the call because Bill Colley looks like he's been thinking real hard and that can be very dangerous. Um, but it did look like Bill actually had something he was going to jump in on, Bill. I was just thinking that I was going to say that's the most sense Trey's made as long as I've known him. <laughs> Being bullish on office. Known him a long time, too. Finally, he's making some sense. I mean, I'll give you, you asked about a juxtaposition around in the retail and industrial, which I think was savvy. That's a good question because the alternative to retail in many cases to deliver goods and services is an e-commerce channel, right? So logistics. Someone brought this up to me the other day and it sort of resonated. What is the alternative to office? It's right. your house or your house or your coffee table or your study. That is not a rational, reasonable alternative in my mind. And so I know that we're going to have some of that, but I will tell you back to my earlier comments and I want to end with this if we're going to run out of time. You know, this, this shift on office is not just a Dallas, Trey, Andrew, Bill Colley, JLL thing. This is real. And if you followed any of the, the sound bites that have come out in the articles, KPMG just revised their CEO survey about office utilization and usage. In, in April of last year, CEOs came across, by the way, selling their own book and saying what their shareholders were expecting them to say, which is we're going to reduce our office footprint and have less, more flexible workspace. It was like 87% of CEOs said that. In the survey last month, it was down to 19%. You want to talk about a change of sentiment. You know, high 80s to 20% shift in the same CEO's survey over a nine-month period of time relative to their utilization of office. So, yes, I'm. Well, we're going to have one more. We're going to have one more question for Trey. And Trey used that phrase the other day, and I really liked it. Use the phrase "selling their book." In other words, everybody is in a sign of confusion, reiterating their own narrative over and over, and trying to sell it. I like that twist of a phrase. So. We're going to open up for one last question for Trey, and then we're going to hand it off to Linda McMahon, president of the Real Estate Council, to wrap us up and close us off. But before we do, Mr. Lafitte's no longer on the call, but 
Thank you, Mike Lafitte. Thank you, Trey. And thank you for everybody who took the time out today to, to participate, to listen, to ask questions, to join in. Hope you found this informative and really worth your time. I really appreciate it. Does anybody have a last question for Trey? And no softballs. You got to hit them. Got to hit them with a left hook on the last question. Anybody's got a good left hook? Have at it. Well, I got a question. Uh, Mike, I, I've got a question, and it might be a dual question for you and Trey. You know, Trey, you mentioned that um, in Boston, the, the square footage for uh, life sciences went, is currently 35 million and anticipated to have 45 million more on top of that. And we see that you know, in our firm that there are many uh, markets in the U.S. and abroad that are strong in life sciences, but that the Dallas-Fort Worth market kind of plays below its weight in that market. And are, are there things we can do so politically with infrastructure, with education, with uh, recruiting of young talent to, you know, to intensify our, um, you know, our vision into this? Yeah, Trey, you want me to field that one? Yeah, I just want, well, I'm going to go to your, your alma mater and I want to make a quick comment and you take it. We're, we're doing a large development in Cambridge right now which I'm not that familiar with, but I am more so now having handled it in the process of handling it. The, I, I did not appreciate the magnetism of smart talent wanting to be with smart talent. And when you have the brain power of a Cambridge all being there, that, that is, that's such a dramatic situation that's hard to replicate. So you, the word you used in the second of your list was education. To me, it's all about that. Uh, Mike? Yeah, you just you, you, you hit the punchline at the end. Uh, 27 major universities in Boston, period, paragraph, end of conversation, four of which are major world centers of intellectual power. That's driven by a system that feeds up to it. If Dallas wants to get into the life sciences, into that type of game, you have to have the university systems, you have to have the feeder systems, which means you have to have education, and it starts at kindergarten. And it sounds really funny. And then you have to hit the kids at by fourth grade. That's your telltale number, whether they're going to be hitting prison or whether they're hitting university. All you have to look at is fourth grade, end of fourth grade. That one test answers that question. It's completely about driving of a higher education, which is driven by lower education. We're at, at the end of our time. Linda McMahon, please wrap us up. Uh, thanks, everyone, and uh, it's really kind of uh, daunting to think that this is a one-year anniversary of uh, starting to have these conversations, and I, I really do thank Bill so much for his leadership in starting this because uh, we have all learned an awful lot from all of your wisdom and your insights, but what has been so exciting for me is to be able to witness all of you working together and sharing information and talking about the future which has really been great. Um, so thanks for the time that all of you ha have given us because this has uh, been extremely valuable. And we've been sharing this information through our podcast programs. And I can tell you a lot of younger members of the Real Estate Council have really benefited from your experience and wisdom and knowledge. So we appreciate that. I will tell you, we are going back to the office full-time uh, in June and we are resuming full-time programming in person in June. Um, so we're super excited about that. Uh, we think it's time and uh, our members have been extremely patient, but they're not going to be patient very much longer. So um, I'm looking forward to seeing all of you in person. 
I've been vaccinated, so I'm going to give you a hug. Um, and I hope uh, all of you have a great rest of your day. And again, thanks so much for sticking with us for the last year. It's just really been very valuable, not only for the Real Estate Council, but for all of the members that have been participating. That's all for today's show. I'd like to thank Mike Lafitte of CBRE, Trey Morsback of JLL, and everyone else who contributed to today's CRE Executive Roundtable. In light of today being our 100th episode, I'd also like to take a moment to thank each and every one of you out there who has listened to the show, who has appeared on the show, and who has supported what we have set out to do with this show, which is provide you with the vast knowledge that our Trek members bring to the organization and the commercial real estate industry here in Dallas. Thank you all so very much. Before we sign off, I'd like to remind you to subscribe to the show. If you want to receive more episodes like this one, as well as event replays and exclusive interviews, write to your mobile device and follow Trek on social media for the latest news and updates from around the Real Estate Council. Until next time, I'm Bill San Antonio. Thanks for listening.